1: Nicholson Baker, we know, is an amazing writer. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from him. But we also want to uh, thank David Eulin in advance for um, his fine j- um, job. We'll be interviewing uh, Mr. Baker. Uh, if you don't know Mr. Euland's work, just open up the LA Times. He's doing the book reviews, and he's a fine writer himself. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nicholson Baker and David Eulin.
0: store. I love the roof of this store, which is uh, Buckminster Fullerene, I guess, or something. I like That's, the tree. The, the tree is incredible, yeah. Where does it, it gets, a, oh, it gets skylight. yes. I understand. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to
1: talk for about half an hour. We're going to open it up to you. There might be some reading. There might be some singing. um, There might be some other things. We'll see how it goes. Um, Wax, paper, and comb. Wax, paper, and comb ring against against a kettle, right? Ring against a a pasta pot. Um, Should we just plunge in? Yes, please. Okay, so... um, Let's start with the obvious question. This, the new novel, Traveling Sprinkler, is a sequel of, of sorts to um, the anthologist. It picks up the story of Paul Chowder, who is the main character of the anthologist, the, 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 the anthologist who couldn't write the introduction to his own anthology. <laughs> uh, an excellent conundrum I have been there myself <laughs> uh, and so uh, let me ask you what um, let's start with the sort of what was the impetus to return to this uh, this character it's the first time you've um, you've gone back to a character in, in your writing life
0: well I, I found that I couldn't I couldn't say goodbye to him because he was he actually had a personality you know he was um, in, in the anthologist he was trying to write an introduction and that's a that's a problem but as I was writing the book, I felt that he gradually sort of accumulated, the way you, when you move those uh, card, pieces of cardboard around a cotton candy machine, he began to accumulate a sense of self, a way of speaking, which uh, happened because I I, uh, I wrote the book by setting up a video camera and taping myself, trying to explain some of the complexities of rhyme and meter and uh, and I did it so many times that I got bored with what I actually had to say about meter I first thought you know I have I, I want to I, I have a point to make I want to tell people about the secret sixth syllable in iambic pentameter and all that by the time I explained it a lot of time into a video camera it turned out that, it actually, I wanted to talk about other things in life, you know, um, and that's so, so. The novel just grew out of my own attempt through successive takes, of speaking into recording devices and video cameras. Sometimes, talking while I typed, speak typing, um, and 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 the guy, this guy Paul, I just gave him a name, and he became a person, and I liked him. Okay, he was enough. He was different enough for me that I could actually have a feeling of affection for him. And then I f- felt that, he, uh, that, that it was over um, and I wrote a couple other books and then was in the middle of writing um, a nonfiction book about trying to write protest songs and trying to rediscover as a middle-aged man, rediscover the music that I had studied as a as a high school kid and, and a, for a year in college. I was a bassoonist. I had a little moment as a professional bassoonist. I I actually bought a tuxedo and I had a white uh, white bow tie. You know, I was the fourth bassoonist for the Rochester Philharmonic for a short time, um, and so I wanted to. How many bassoonists do they usually have on stage? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, the, that's, a, that's a good point. Mostly, you know, for Mozart, it's two. For Beethoven, it might be three. So you have to wait for Mahler and Bruckner and these sort of awful late romantic people who need huge numbers of uh, a huge orchestra. And the fourth bassoon is just the person plugging away, playing the notes that nobody hears, and, and, and proud to be there, you know? And so sitting up straight, you know, wearing the tux, and... The, the the bassoon was incredibly important to me in my youth and I um and I practiced it so hard that it pushed my two front teeth apart and it, and I had a basketball injury from when a basketball hit me in the jaw I kind of hurt my jaw so I had to practice the bassoon with my jaw kind of partly dislocated so it hurt but I just kept doing it so it was really you know everything to me it was this crazy brown, wooden, maple wood instrument that had lots of nickel-plated keys. You know, your thumb controls 12 keys. And, um, and then all these years went by, and I, I always thought, I'm saving up the bassoon. You know, someday I will write a book that does justice to this incredible Victorian instrument and um, then I thought what am I what am why have I never even used the word bassoon in in anything I've never done justice to it and it seemed as if that was a kind of Paul Chowder emotion you know why has why have I never used the word bassoon in a poem he says why have I been avoiding this this is my this is something that was important so so that's part of what happened with traveling sprinkler
1: well that raises an interesting point because you say on the one hand that Paul is different enough from you um, you guys can all hear me in the back right so that Paul is in, is different enough from you to be interesting to you but at the same time um, and you've said this uh, before about him that there is um, there are real similarities between you and Paul I mean huh. in terms of um, both sort of inner life and in terms of actually yeah. the action um, that takes place in in both of the Paul Chowder novels I wonder if you can talk about that sort of split the the, the similarities and you know how similar he is, and also what that little edge of distance is
0: well see he 's um, I mean I poured everything I had into this book, so it 's a very 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 autobiographical book but um, but it starts with some some big differences, the m- big one being that I have never really written i 've only had one published poem. I published a poem in the New Yorker about 20 years ago. And it was really not a poem. It was sort of a trick. It was called the, From the Index to First Lines. And I just, I, I thought, I, I, it was a Sunday. And I thought, um, what if you wrote a poem that was made out of a fictional index to a book of poems. You know how when you look and say the H's they're all the first lines, all the words that begin the first lines, and they all have different metric, metrical systems and you don't know the poems that they attach to. So I just wrote about 18 first lines to poems that didn't exist um, and sent it into the New Yorker <laughs> and they published it. And that's, so that's my only claim to fame as as a poet. Well, Paul Chowder has written three books of poems or and he's struggling to write another, I think two or three. Um, and so the huge difference is that he actually understands this world. And I'm only, I'm, I'm sort of a pretender. The other big difference is that I'm a happily married guy who lives in South Berwick, Maine with my wife and I have two grown children and he is me if I'd never met my wife, I mean that, that was and that was sort of the key to me was imagine a person to whom this enormous lucky thing had never happened. I met my wife at Bryn Mawr College. I was at I was at Haverford College, and they, but back then Haverford was all male and Bryn Mawr was all women, and they had an exchange program, and you could live on the Bryn Mawr campus if you were a Haverford student, and so. I said, yes, I do want to live on the Bryn Mawr campus. <laughs> and, um, and I lived on this, this dorm. It was kind of neo-medieval dorm called Rhodes Hall, third floor, and shared a bathroom with all these women. And it was just intoxicating. And I met my wife there and spent the rest of my life with her. What if that had never happened? I would be very like this guy. I would be, you know, pining to find that person. And so that that's the that's the huge difference between him and me. And he he's maybe he's maybe a little uh no, I'm pretty unhappy. He's I was going to say he's unhappier than I am. But I have my moods. <laughs>
1: Well, he also—I mean—he's unful—I mean—he's fulfilled it, but unfulfilled in the sense that you know, in the first novel, he's struggling to write this introduction. Mm-hmm. We've talked before about whether or not I, uh, the the novel itself is in fact the introduction that he can't write, um, or sort of long version of the introduction, almost a Nabokovian <laughs> idea, right? The introduction is longer than the book itself, but the the and in this book, he's not right. I mean, he has got this book of poems that he's supposed to be writing. He has some conversations with his editor periodically who wants to know how the book is going. He sort of Mm-hmm. Gives him uh, tells him the books going better than it is, <laughs> <laughs> which you do with an editor, right? It's I mean, going well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have it very soon. <laughs> but it, you know, but he isn't writing. I mean, in, in a way, he, you know, he likes to think about the poems that he wants to write, but he is not actually um, putting anything on paper. Well, what he's doing
0: um, is experimenting with tobacco, um, and well, okay. So he says to his editor. I've got this, I've got a title. I've got a, because there's a poem that I've written called Misery Hat, and this is a subject that's attracted me periodically, is this idea that you have something that you knit for yourself that has a supernatural power. This yarn that you have, you wander into a yarn store which are they're beautiful, there's nothing more beautiful than a yarn store. And you pick a skein of some kind of yarn that has all sort of secret threads in it, and it turns out to be a magical yarn, and you knit it, and when you knit this cap, maybe it's one of those caps with the things coming down or something, and you put it on, it turns out to be a misery hat. A, a hat that, that allows you to feel all the sad things that are happening. Within a certain radius, maybe it's 50 miles, or maybe it's 5,000 miles. And so he writes a poem called "Misery Hat," and then he thinks, "No, no, no." And and somebody, a famous, semi-famous editor at the Atlantic, rejects his poem. Uh, Peter Davison. Um, he, Peter Davison, I uh, rejected my first novel. So I, there's 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 how the, the fiction and nonfiction intersect. But um, he, um, he So he says, it's not just gonna be a poem in this book. I'm gonna call it Misery Hat. And he says to the editor, I've got a title. And, and, he sa- and, the, ti- the, and the editor says, I just don't think that, you know, Misery Hat is a selling kind of, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, that's true. And so what do you do when you have to finish something and you don't want to finish it and you need a new drug? Um What I did was to uh, buy some chewing tobacco, you know those little round cans, um, skull. I thought, why not you know? People do this, and so I bought. Uh, I I, t- I, t- I bought it. I, I kind of cut it. Well, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. You would,
1: you'd had no ex- You'd had no experience with tobacco before. No, no.
0: <laughs> and the idea of smoking a cigarette is disgusting, you know. But, but I slapped the, the can against my hand the way they did it in the videos and cut it around. Then took this enormous, you know, mass and stuffed it in my mouth. It's called a hammer. I got a hammer in my mouth. This kind of huge <laughs> wad of this disgusting material, and I'm starting to, you know, salivate madly. And and in in real in, real tobacco chewers have this thing called a mud jug, which I had to write about in the book because they're so fascinating. Mud jugs, different kind of Confederate flag mud jugs. You know, horrible sort of sort of a, a rednecky thing. So um, so I I actually just sort of semi-lost consciousness Um, and I just, you know, spit out this hammer load of horrible tobacco and just lay on the grass thinking, oh my god, I'm dying. Um, um, So I then tried, okay, well that did not work. That did not help me finish my novel. Um, But there's hope, you know, because it obviously had a mental effect. Um, So then I um, got a pipe. My grandfather smoked a pipe, and I thought, you know, and Alan Dulles, head of the CIA smoked a pipe um so I bought a pipe and smoked it, and that was a lot of work, you know stuffing things in and everything and in, in the end i bought um I went into a cigar store um, which I'd never been in, and it's a really fascinating place, and it has a closed area, a sort of columbarium of cigars it's a closed place you open it and get in there and it's quiet and the cigars are all resting and they're waiting you know and it's very like a bookstore it's 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 just and they all have beautiful labels and I said to the guy give me a cigar that will help me finish my book you know, I need something really powerful because I've got to finish this book. And he said, Do you want something robust? And I said, I'm, I'm not just robust. I want something that just kicks me in the head and wipes the floor with me, takes me down. And he said, You want a Fausto? You know, <laughs> a Fausto. I said, Yes, I want a Fausto. And he took me over to this box and it had these red. Labels and 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 I bought five of them and I smoked them and and, and I was off. I was writing like a demon after that. So they sitting you, in the car,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> Smoking cigars and writing. There you have it. The key to successful novel construction. <laughs> so I mean, look, look, uh, you 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 talked earlier that this that you know you were working on a book, a nonfiction book mm-hmm. that you were finding yourself unable to write, and that this um, that this sort of came out of that. There are. Elements of of, um, of of music, or I mean, many elements of music, but elements of that book. Come out in this book oh, yeah. in terms of Paul talking about his youthful musical um, interest and in musical um, achievement. In terms of um, the writing, all the writing about Claude Debussy, mm-hmm. and um, was Debussy part of the original book, the, the the nonfiction book you were writing?
0: Right. The original book was going to be a book that that was going to write about unhappy things like drone warfare. But I thought, don't just give them this word drones that everybody hears and thinks, oh God, not another book about drones. um give them something beautiful, so it was going to be sort of a guy shuttling back and forth between Claude WC's 10th Prelude, The Sunken Cathedral, and Drone Warfare. <laughs> um, and it just didn't, it felt false, you know, it, it didn't actually feel, what you want from a memoir is it to, for it to be true, and it didn't feel true. And the nice thing about writing novels is that if you construct a person who is a little bit unlike you, uh, you can, really actually pour yourself into it and, and be more truthful that way. So in the end, I, I think I got more of myself out into this book, even though it's technically a novel because there, lots of it isn't absolutely true, than I would if, uh, if I had tried to tell it exactly as it happened. But, but in a given day, I would um, I would try to write a piece of music using some... Music writing software, Apple's Logic Pro, was what I was using, and a keyboard. Um, and sometimes I would uh, record things around the house, like I had a. Um, uh, well, you mentioned the pasta pot, but I, I there was I, I I recorded my wedding ring against the pasta pot with some water in it, because it got a kind of warped feeling, and I used that as, as a rhythmic motive in one song. And then I discovered the hard-boiled egg slicer, which, uh, you know, that it's sort of like a harp. It's got six strings, and you plink it, and it and actually it formed a scale. So I recorded all the notes in the scale and mapped them to the keyboard, and then I could actually play a little something that was, I was playing the tune of the Hard Boiled Egg Slicer and that's appealing to me because that's what I think that novelists are doing is you look around the room and you think what are the interesting pieces of our life and how can we sing them? Well, in this case I could actually use it as a musical element in a song. So I would try to write a song and then I would Read a little Medea Benjamin on drone warfare, and somehow mixed it all together. Well, they
1: all appear in the book. Medea Benjamin is referenced in the book. Sure. Um, there's a lot of um, of Paul reflecting on on drone warfare, um, and then the music, which is you know in in the f- in the first book, Paul spends a lot of time, as as you mentioned, reflecting on meter and poetry. I often think of you know the anthologist as the first novel ever written about iambic pentameter. <laughs> 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 and in this novel he makes music i mean one of the things that he does to sort of deal with the fact that he can't write his book is to is to make music did how did uh, how did that come in did we did you start making the music first and then sort of work it into the book did they kind of evolve simultaneously um how what how, what, what was that relationship how it was it, it
0: was back and forth i i started by writing the music and then and then when i was still in the non fiction realm and then abandoned that and then Uh, so increasingly wrote the songs in the voice of Paul Chowder, which means I wrote the best songs I could possibly write given my own limitations, but it was was, it was it was a book that evolved, I guess I I thought of it evolving the way um, the way it would, if you you know, the title of the book Traveling Sprinkler is is sort of what the way it felt like to write the book. A traveling sprinkler is um, is a little cast iron tractor. Do you know what a traveling sprinkler is? I mean, it's a it's a beautiful. It's the great American machine. It is. It is. Um, I I went to Sears with my dad when I was about seven, and uh, we were in the gardening supply place, and Sears was. Putting its brand name on everything, but it was made by this company called National Sprinkler in North Platte, Nebraska. Anyway, it was a, it's a green and white tractor made of cast iron, and you screw the hose in the back, and the water comes up, and twirls out the helicopter twirly element, and um, and that. Is nice because it would water the garden, but that's like a normal sprinkler. But this was a a traveling sprinkler, which meant that it also turned this central gear and uh, these things called paws, P-A-W-L-S, like uh, the Eberhart poem about the belt feed holding Paul, the Second World War poem. But this this little paw would hook one of the white teeth of the rear tractor wheels of this thing and go make a little clinking sound and pull it forward as the thing was going down around in 16th notes and then the thing would go clink and then it would pull this machine forward by an inch and a half you know and then clink it was just this tortoise-like progression of a machine slowly pushing wanting to go further around whatever it is you had to sprinkle <laughs> Um, and that was good, but it wasn't all, because it was also that the front wheel, this little atrophied front wheel of the traveling sprinkler, uh, I thought of it as, you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex has those kind of tiny little front, front arms, but it has this little white wheel, and you put it over the hose. So the hose, which is the source of its motive power, its history, its past, you run the hose all over your garden assuming that you don't give it too sharp a turn. And, and then you put the traveling sprinkler on that thing and it follows it around. It, it actually follows its own history. It's sort of a, a, a double thing. There's this terrible moment where universes will collide in a kind of science fiction way when the traveling sprinkler makes it all the way back to the faucet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, So that that idea of just sort of feeling my way through songwriting, uh, you know, he's in love with this fantastic woman who doesn't, for some reason, has taken up with a muckraking doctor. All those different things in his life, he he has to kind of arrange the flow of his own rationalization around. So that's Well, it's
1: funny. I mean, the novel works like a traveling sprinkler, as you suggest, in a way, because it is Paul sort of traversing his own history and thinking back, trying to go back, um trying to reconcile um certain things. It's a it's a novel of middle age. He's 55. Mm-hmm. He talks about how Debussy died at 55. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that one riff where he talks about, you know, when he was fifty-five, Dylan Thomas had been dead for 17 years and Keats had been dead for almost 30 years. And there is this constant kind of comparison, right? What have I done? Look at these people. What have I done? Where am I going? Mm-hmm. What's going on? I mean the book is sort of imbued with that sense of, of time's limitations. And in a way. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, I remember taking, when I was about uh, 23, so. 23, I took a writing class with Donald Barthelme in at Berkeley. And um, he was a very, kind of a brusque man. Brilliant writer very funny on the page but kind of brusque in person but he said this one thing that uh, that I really always have always remembered he said that when you pass the age of 50 you start counting <laughs> you know and it's it's true and it's frightening and and you st- I'm, I'm constantly doing little arithmetical exercises where I say well, I'm 56 so that's that's let's say 65 minus 56 is you know I'm always a- then I kind of extend the farther end of it a little bit to so it's a so i think what what you want to do is try to be true to the fact that time is limited and and um, i feel more pressure to say whatever it is that i have left to say in some kind of coherent way and it's hard to finish things and um, i have lots of unfinished projects i never go into my office because my office is sort of a Boulevard of broken dreams, of all these <laughs> horrible stacks of things that I didn't finish. So I, that's why I always write all over the house. I write in the, the yard, I write at the kitchen table, I write in the barn, because I never want to see all the things that I failed to finish. But th- at some point you have to finish those things. you know. Um,
1: Do you think that's, so that, do you think that's the most important thing for a writer is finishing, or for any artist, right, is to finish for for good or ill. You're not going to, you you do what you can,
0: but eventually you want to finish. I think that something amazing happens when you've finished a story or finished a novel is you get to look at it. It becomes a thing. And suddenly, out there, and it's sort of floating, and you can look at it in all of it. You can turn it in various directions and say, "What does it lack? Is it good? Is it bad? Where do where do I need to work on it?" If it's always in process, you're just putting something off. You're just, in some ways, you're just wasting your time. And I have all of the, the traveling sprinkler file, you know, I have. It's, it's probably 10 years old. I have all the old patents. I have the 1938 patent for the traveling sprinkler and the 1941 patent by a man named Wilson for the traveling sprinkler. And it was all—it all gets older, and it starts to be this Manila folder that's just not doing anything. It's just sitting in a pile. And sometimes you think, okay, I'll go through it and put some Post-it notes in it, you know. But that uh, unless you take that thing and simmer it you know and make a some sort of a balsamic sauce out of it that turns into something finished you don't you don't take the next step
1: what I've always admired about your fiction, um, going back to the mezzanine, is the idea of this sort of, you know, the important life is the inner life. If you look at a book like The Mezzanine, um, narratively, it's, you know, the, the, the narrative action is a, a guy on his lunch hour, buying mm-hmm. shoelaces, having a sandwich, um, room temperature similarly. Um, and, you know, and the anthologist or traveling sprinkler sort of fall into that category too. There, There is not... Um, a lot of narrative bells and whistles, the real movement takes place in terms of the characters' reflections. Um, I'm curious about your sense of the novel as a form that can encompass all of that. It feels like you're really, consciously or otherwise, kind of blurring lines in the sense of uh, lines between uh, fiction and essay. There's a, uh, as we've been talking about a little bit, there's an essayistic quality to a lot of this. But that idea of a kind of mind
0: in contemplation as the center um, of a work of fiction. Well, I, I do like the idea that, that a novel can offer you tips and tricks, you know, helpful little things. Why not? I mean, why why can't it why can't it help you? I and mean, the, the, the mezzanine, I I had come up with this way of putting on deodorant by sort of sneaking the deodorant up the pleural cavity between the t-shirt and shirt and hooking and doing it and I thought describe that help people out you know <laughs> um, and and I and, and, and that I guess that that's essayistic but I just think of it as being you know constructive it's this is these are the problems that life offers novels are supposed to be part of the way we are help to understand life. Um, I hope that I've taken little steps um, after the mezzanine, room temperature, and a box of matches, very, very enclosed uh, books. Um, in Traveling Sprinkler, um, there are, this hero does have to contend with some, some somewhat bigger things. The woman that he wants to get back together with, uh, you know, turns out to have... This is the first love story that involves a hysterectomy. Right? That's that's a big thing. For somebody like Paul, that is a monumental... That just, you know, blows a hole in his life that he has to deal with something like that. And and so um, I I'm hoping that I'm... You know, my range is extending slightly. But, I mean, I think the novel has to accept the fact that we are... People with who learn about the big things in life mostly by reading the paper. Mostly, we're very lucky people. Um, very few violent things happen to us. We live in the United States, but we read about things that happen in other countries that upset us. And those, then, that kind of percussion of event also is part of our life. And we see things on YouTube that, I mean, that's part of what flows in. And I think a novel that doesn't, that filters out that kind of reality is a novel that's falsifying the way we think about life. Did you, um, I mean,
1: I think that comes across, I think, in the way that the political elements of the novel operate. Paul's concern about the, the drone warfare, the, the riff on Madea Benjamin, his friend who is writing a book about uh, about activism, You, you kind of it makes its point without that point overwhelming um, the story. Did you, were you at all given pause by the question of weaving political, I mean, there is sort of yes. that... that that you know that homily against political fiction, right? Don't don't write political fiction. Right. It gets in the way of your story. Did that give you pause at all at any point? In it the- gave
0: me pause, but then I thought, for one thing, I love doing research. So I have spent many happy days, in at the National Archives and the Library of Congress, going through old memos, carbons. The feeling of old f- carbons from the '40s and '50s, old rusted staples. Things that nobody has read, I and I've and I so I because I've gone through that stuff, I've learned things that I think of as, as either unknown or underknown, and I and I um, one of them was that, that was salient to this book because it's about poetry, uh, both books, which was that Archibald MacLeish, two three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, poet and playwright, was in fact sort of the godfather of the Central Intelligence Agency. Think of that. Um, Back in 1941, in the summer of 1941, he was the Librarian of Congress and he had Roosevelt's ear and he was sort of the bright young man on the scene. He was writing speeches for Roosevelt. Roosevelt said, I want you and William Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, to get together and I want you to form a bureau of secret things. And out, and that's they what, met. That's what they should have called it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a good. They met. He says he. Uh, there's a letter that I've read where Archibald MacLeish says, "Don't you remember? This is several years later. Remember, Bill, that wonderful time when we sat on that cool porch, imagining the great things that were to come. What were the great things? They were. The, it was the Office of Strategic Services. That was the secret bureau during the Second World War. But what McLeish wanted to call it and there's this big fat document in the Library of Congress that's called Proposal for a Central Intelligence Service in the Library of Congress and the relationship of the Library of Congress thereto. And it's, it spells out the way the Library of Congress would a- assemble and manipulate and cook information, make sense of things f- to help the war effort. So MacLeish became in a sense the the namer of the Central Intelligence Agency and some of his uh, skull and bones proteges like James Jesus Angleton and Cord Meyer became the the, the paranoid nutcases that then ran the Central Intelligence Agency in the big go go days of the fifties. So I had this little bit of research that has been you know struggling to get out in me the, all these years, and I just stuffed it in there, you know. <laughs> it only takes three paragraphs, you know. Do you
1: want to read something from the book? Okay, sure, thank you. Um,
0: so, The Traveling Sprinkler is a metaphor um, and it brings up this problem for, for Paul Chowder, of the pro- it's the problem of metaphorical interference It's a serious problem, at least for me. What is metaphorical interference? Okay. Well, it's when two or more strong metaphors are podcasting in the same room together, and they mess with each other. They mix, but not necessarily in the very same sentence, the way a classic mixed metaphor mixes. They mix structurally. Say, for example, that you've decided to mention the traveling sprinkler in your poem. The moment you mention it, it starts to twirl and hiss and spray water everywhere. It becomes a controlling metaphor. There's no help for it. You're going to get wet. But then, say, the traveling sprinkler seems to be tightly connected in your mind, perhaps by a long pale green hose, to another idea that interests you, which is Debussy's piano prelude, The Sunken Cathedral. The Tenth Prelude, you know, it's this amazing work. In C Major, a key that WC didn't use, it is a, it's, it, it is this avocation of a secret ruined structure that's just sort of shimmering. C Major is all white keys, right? But if you pile up the white keys, the water becomes kind of bluish, and the cathedral is in the distance. You think you're still all right because, one, The traveling sprinkler is a real object and the other is a piece of classical music that contains a metaphor of submergence. But then you remember that some yellow jackets have made their nest in the hollow plastic of the hose reel. This happens to me every summer. I know that if Nan, my next door neighbor, says that I can set up the sprinkler's hose root around her tomatoes, I'm going to need my hose as well as her hose. And I know that as soon as I start wheeling the hose reel around and pulling the hose off it, the yellow jackets are going to fly out and dart at me angrily and sting me as I run away. I don't want to be stung, so I'll debate whether I should boil up a pasta pot of water and pour it on the hose reel handle, destroying the yellow jacket nest. My friend Tim told me about this technique, and it definitely worked. But when I did it, I felt horrible afterward. What right did I have to destroy a whole happy nest of insects, regardless of how annoying they are when they crawl around on the potato chips? Now your poem is in trouble. You've got wasps in the hose reel, you've got the sprinkler twirling at the end of the hose, and you've got Debussy's Cathedral sunk under the waves. You've got fish, you've got tomatoes. (laughs) You're starting to get strange purple interference patterns, fringe moire patterns at the edges of each metaphor where it overlaps its neighbor. Photographers call this purple fringing, and it's a flaw. This is the moment when your creative writing teacher may say, You've got an awful lot going on here, Paul. (laughs) Maybe you need to pare this poem down and pick a controlling image. And you acknowledge that he has a point. Too many colors make the rinse water muddy. We know that. On the other hand, the world is full of metaphors that are happily coexisting in our brains. And we don't go crazy. You have them all swarming and nesting and reeled up in there, but they don't trouble one another. One moment you entertain one metaphor, and the next moment the next, no harm done. And this time you think, I don't want to worry about this rhetorical non-problem. I want to pour them all in and let them go wild together. Let all the metaphors fuck each other like desperate spouse swappers. I don't care. I summarily reject this notion of metaphorical interference for the time being, and I'm putting it aside, and I'm going to think over the things that call forth thought, and if they happen to get in one another's way from time to time, that's just what happens. So that was my method in writing the, writing the book. <laughs> no, so, thank you
1: so I just want to ask you a couple more questions and sure. then we'll turn it over, yeah. um, but I do want to ask you um, you also say in the book that poems um, shouldn't be long, that a poem shouldn't be longer than two pages, or Paul says in the book yeah. I should say yeah. um, and I wonder, I mean that is your method in terms of writing the book, is that um, I mean that's something you can do in a novel you can have a whole lot of things going on, whereas perhaps in a poem you really, you feel that you can't or is that simply the conceit that you're using for the, for the, for, for the purpose of the book
0: I've never used any you know, crafty conceit for anything. I'm always totally sincere. But um, what I like about books of poems, and why they taught me how to write prose, is that you're always beginning on any page, practically, unless it goes, sometimes they bleed onto the second page. But if it's a book of lyric poems from, say, Howard Moss, Stanley Kunitz, Elizabeth Bishop, they're usually a page and a half. You're always starting out. I love that. And the thing that I like best about novels, actually, is that big white stretch of emptiness where it says, chapter one. And then, then there are a couple words in small caps. And I'm, I'm very happy at that point. You know, Sometimes I peter out after that, but, but so I, yes, I like things, I am impatient. I like things to happen in small chunks because I think that most of the time when we're thinking our way through life, the, the cycles of thought we have are about a paragraph and a half, two, three paragraphs long. We seldom think in full chapters.
1: And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about Debussy, who I knew very little about um, until I read this book. Um, so I hope it's accurate. Um, but I, you know, I want to ask you about sort of the appeal of him and the draw of him, both to you and to Paul. The, 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 the you know, the sense of his career. Um, you know, this idea that he produced this beautiful piece of music at the end of his life when he was struggling, um, struggling for money, struggling with health issues, struggling with a sense of being defeated almost, or that life had had kind of um, turned out in a way that he hadn't anticipated uh-huh. or desired um, All those are really resonant ideas I think they speak not just to Paul but they speak in general they certainly sp- uh, speak to human experience So I just want to ask you about ask you to talk a little bit about that
0: Well okay Paul WC somebody said he looked like a banker banker um, He had a comb over uh, he had an enormous forehead uh, which is where the music lived and when he was a, when he was a young kid at the conservatoire, he could just noodle endlessly and everybody would sort of cluster around the grand piano debussy is playing and then all these chords would just you know nobody had heard the sounds that he was making before and he was he was really a prodigious engine of of originality in in the history of of music um but but you know you have to make a living and and he he smoked a lot smoked way too much and he collected little tiny uh carved jade toads he had had very expensive tastes Um, and he married the wrong woman and um, she ended up trying to shoot herself with a handgun but survived married another woman thought he was going to be rich because she was rich but her father disinherited him he's 55 he's got cancer of the down below and um, and he's you know he realizes that it's now or never and and he writes these 12 preludes a prelude just means you can go anywhere you want you start and you just go and he and 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 each one of them is different and they have a number at the top and the interesting thing about them is that they just say ten or nine or eight at the top in Roman numerals. You don't know what the prelude is about till you've played your way through it and you come to a little italicized title at the end. It's very, you know, secret. Secretly it's about the sunken cathedral, but it's really about a piece of music. So the man is just... Debussy appealed to me because when I was at the Eastman School of Music as a bassoonist and would-be composer, I went into their stacks and pulled out Debussy's Preludes and put the big LP down on the on the thing and set the tone arm down and had my big Life Raft headphones on and it was an incredible experience to hear somebody that original just doing things. You can actually hear Debussy himself playing on a player piano, piano roll performance um, and it's my favorite piece of classical music um, and it just seemed because it was so important to me, um, I thought that I wanted to give it a position of prominence. Um, I wanted to think about what it was like to be somebody who was very aware of his own mortality and who had to support himself as a conductor. He was the worst conductor in the world, very wooden conductor. But he had to go to England, to Germany, even to Russia, and sort of make a living as a, as a conductor because they wanted to see him. It just fascinates me. And um, and, and he, I wanted to give his piece of music a big moment. I wanted to give it a novel. And, and, and one of the things that Paul Chowder does towards the end of the book is he thinks, God damn it, I'm going to drive to Stockbridge, Massachusetts because that's the f- place in the United States where the Sunken Cathedral was first performed at the Casino Building in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I wanna see that building. <laughs> so he gets, you know, so that, and, uh, and it's helpful to me because, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm always starved for incident in my books. And so the fact that he has to drive to Stockbridge was very helpful. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um,
1: and let's turn it over. We should also point out that the music that was playing before is um, music that Nicholson Baker made as part of the process of writing the book and is available as part of the ebook is that right is there
0: uh yeah if you buy the ebook you get there's well there're two ebook versions well there's the normal ebook and then there's the so-called deluxe ebook and the deluxe ebook has a, has an album at the back that says uh Paul Ch- uh, says traveling sprinkler an album and it has 12, 12 songs in it it has the it has uh it has the protest song that that I struggled with. And, and I set some, uh, I set four lines of Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, long live the weeds in the wilderness yet, a beautiful poem. Um, I, I just did the best I could with the musical talent that I had and tried to write in the voice of Paul Chowder, but also tr- just had a lot of fun plinking around on the, on the keyboard. So we'll take
1: some questions if anyone wants to raise their hand.
2: So in the book, there is a link to a YouTube video and he talks about some other specific YouTube videos that we went and found, and I was just wondering if you've contacted these people and asked like, hey, can I put you in my book, or if uh, it's going to be a surprise
0: for them. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, okay, so I did a sort of postmodern thing that it thought seemed exciting at the time and was probably a mistake, <laughs> which was that I, uh, I uh, there's a very nice scene in which uh, a Canadian singer-songwriter named Stephen Fearing is filmed, just casually filmed in a Paris hotel lobby, singing a song, I don't want to know about evil, I just want to know about love. And he just sings the hell out of this thing, and he's got a slide guitarist with him, and somebody put it up on YouTube, and it's beautiful. And I—that is just the same impulse as I, I thought, I would really like people to see this thing. Um, and and then I got excited about the idea that I would not—that it's a printed work. So if you, so if you type out a YouTube link in this thing, you're not—and you tap on it, or you're not—you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, but you're going to look at that long URL, you know. <laughs> And I love looking at those. It's got the backslash and the question mark, watch, question mark, and then it goes, capital H, J, K, capital J, six, five, you know. It's a long thing of gobbledygook. And, And yet, you know, this magical thing that we don't understand takes us to a Paris hotel lobby. So, uh, no, I didn't ask permission. <laughs> Why should I ask permission? This nice person posted it on YouTube. It's part of the flora and fauna of our life, just the way it would be if I was writing about the, uh, the botanical gardens or, or about Wilshire Boulevard. This is, YouTube is part of the terrain that we deal with every day. More questions, other hands? If I quoted from it, you know, that's a different thing. If you actually use somebody else's words without permission, that's, I think, an infraction. But yes, sorry. Don't be shy. We'll start calling on people. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world to ask questions, I think. Yeah. Well, okay. That is, uh, what is so hard about writing about politics? Well, one thing you don't—you just feel as if you're chiming in. You feel you're whining. You feel you're saying what everybody's saying. Glenn Greenwald is saying it, and he's really smart, and he's saying it better than I'm saying it. And he's on the case, and he's making news, and he's got the links. And all I'm doing is saying, yeah, Gren- Glenn Greenwald is right. You know, that's—that's that's not very good. Also, my mother is a tremendous Obama supporter. And was. And this was, I wrote this all during the campaign. There's sort of mentions of the campaign. And I didn't want to break her heart by saying, God damn it, this man who put hope all over those damn posters, then quintupled the number of drone strikes and destroyed all of the good feelings that we had. And there, there's a sort of, you know, uh, just a t- terrible distress. In having, demo- having, good intentions and hopes just simply steamrolled over that way. So there's some anti-Obama things that just had to kind of sneak out. You know, just let let it out. I mean, this is it's a, it was a it was a disaster and 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 nobody was able to say how bad a disaster it was because we all wanted it to work out so well. And it's just heartbreaking. So the hardest thing for me was to actually just think, "Well, tell the frickin truth, you know. He broke our hearts. He did the wrong stuff. Over and over again, he made the wrong decision. He's been a disaster, much worse disaster than any you know, simple-minded Republican because we, had, we, we believed that he was capable of better things. And that's why I have to rein myself in by inventing a fictional character and only confining him to several paragraphs at a time about that. There's too much politics in the novel, even the little tiny doses. I mean, it's like a hypodermic needle. You jab it in once and pull out, and it's so much even to put a tiny bit in there. That's the other hard part. And also the words are so familiar. A word like Brennan, oh my God, you know, Brennan, it's just, it's a fatiguing word to read it on the page. I'd much rather read the name of the, the Secretary of Defense or the head of the CIA in the 50s. Let's say I'd rather read about Alan Dulles and his pipe than I'd, that I'd like to read about any current political figure. I'm always interested in things that are a little out of the way. So that was the other challenge about writing about current politics. That's a very good question. Yes. Why did you choose to write, the, to write the, your name in, in lower caps, I was
1: curious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why would I choose to write my name in lower caps? Um, because uh, there was a very good designer who at Penguin Books who put my name in lower caps. I mean,
1: and it's I. It's in full caps on the on the spine.
0: Okay, it's in full caps on the spine. I picked the. This is a, this picture of the hose, uh, I found, and, but, uh, but I, I like the way the hose kind of intersects with the, the typography, but um, I, I have been really fortunate in book jackets in that, that talented people take the title and kind of play around with it and come up with images that I don't have anything to do with. This is the first one that I actually had some contribution to because I chose the hose picture. So I'm really pleased about that. <laughs> uh, you wrote a whole book about being a big fan of John Updike's writing. Mm-hmm. When he passed away several years ago, did you go through a mourning process? Did you celebrate his life by returning to his books? Or so I wrote a book called You and I, which was uh, my little adventure in uh, what I thought was called was something like memory criticism. What do you? How do you write about a a writer? if you do not prepare to write about him. You don't say, okay, I'm gonna write a book about Updike and I'm gonna read all of Updike. No, I'm gonna write a book about Updike without actually doing any studying. I'm just gonna write about it with only the phrases that are in my mind now. So it was a short book. (laughs) But but so once I'd finished that, I I actually was embarrassed. (laughs) Because for one thing, Updike would go to readings and people would come up and say, "What do you think about that Nicholson Baker book about you?" You know, and he, I felt that I was sort of dogging him, that I was, you know, following him around, and it was embarrassing. But I then had this stately correspondence with him, and and he never wanted to really sit down and have a cup of coffee, but he was perfectly happy to write me a postcard from time to time. And then, um, and I. I think because I'd written a whole book, I sort of didn't read him as attentively, which is a terrible thing to say and then he died and he and um, and I was stunned because of course, one imagines i don't understand death, one imagines that everybody is going to live forever in a way. And what I've found recently, several years after he's gone, is that um, I've rediscovered that he is one heck of a good essayist. And I've been reading, I start the morning sometimes just reading one of his book reviews about anything, about the Titanic and the Lusitania, or about about some neglected Eastern European writer. And he turns out to be just a tremendously amazing positioner of adjectives and fashioner of sentences. And so all of my old complexities of admiration and rivalry and everything else have just disintegrated. And now I just think, I am really learning a lot from this human being. And he's still alive, you know. I really loved all the descriptions in the book of the Quaker meetings. Oh, yeah. So the question is, um, uh, am I a Quaker? There are lots of descriptions of Quaker meetings in this book. Um, my mother's family, my grandfather was uh, was raised a Quaker. He lived in Morristown, Pennsylvania, on a street with all his Quaker relatives in a big house, and uh, and he didn't turn out to be a good Quaker. Uh, he's he, he Drank way too much, and he liked Renaissance art. He became an art historian, and the Quakers were sort of opposed to music and art, or or some some of them. Um, So my mother was raised in a sort of Quakerish ambiance, and I never really understood what that meant. But then I happened to go to a Quaker college, Haverford College, and the one Quaker meeting I went to was on graduation day, and it was it was quite amazing. Everybody was sitting still and just being quiet. And and I liked it and then I just sort of forgot about it. I'm not a religious person. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want to say I'm an atheist because that's such a brutal word. I'm a non-theistic person. Um, Hitchens takes it so far and he's so rough, you know, he's so <laughs> nasty about it. But um, But so I then my wife and my daughter went to uh, the Dover Friends Meeting, which is just a few miles from where we live in Maine. And they came back saying, my God, it was amazing. It was silent. And then this woman stood up and talked about two rocks in a creek side by side. And she said this beautiful thing, and everyone was choking up. And I thought, I want to I, I have what she's having. you know." <laughs> um, and so I started to go to this same meeting. And I found that it was a, a, just... Uh, It's very hard to describe, but it's called expectant waiting. But you just sit in the silence with other people who are doing their best to be good people, but silent. And uh, the dragster tires of your mind start kind of spinning and smoke is rising, but you can't say anything. And then sometimes you feel, God, no, I have to say something. I have to stand up. And there's this almost physical thing of just standing up and telling people whatever it is. In this case, Paul pops up and has wants to tell them about W.C. Sunken Cathedral, of <laughs> course. Um, and, and then doesn't. And that's the great moment of you know self-renunciation, is that you don't say what you've spent all meeting trying to say. But it's a just a tremendous place to think about how you could possibly be a better person with all these other people who are thinking the same thing. And sometimes somebody says some broken, fragmentary thing, and you can just sort of feel it bounce around th- the meeting house. Um, and it's and, and I always write, have a lot to write about afterwards. Um, so it's it's just been a, a, a tremendous help to me as a writer to go to these meetings um, and and just sit still. The whole etiquette, you know, you, every it's like excelsior. Somebody says something, and if and you can't, then just stand up and say something immediately afterward because that's rude. You have to allow the silence to kind of puff around it and insulate it, and then something else happens. So sometimes there's only, say, two things said in a whole hour. And these are all very chatty people, because after meeting they're all just, it's just a pandemonium of chat. (laughs) (laughs) But during it, it's just uh, still, the only thing that's happening is that darn clock is going (laughs) and then when it runs out, sometimes the wound up clock runs out and just and it Oh my God. The clerk of the meeting sort of scampers open wh- winds it up <laughs> and it starts clicking again. Yes, sorry. The way the way the meeting ends, um, it's probably different for every meeting. And this is only this is there's, there are two kinds of Quakerism. There's programmed worship, which is I don't know anything about. It's sort of like regular church where people sing and do stuff. And then there's Quaker meeting, which is unprogrammed, where, where you don't have to do anything at all except sit quietly. Well, as so I'm always watching the clock. Uh, at eleven twenty-nine, eleven thirty, eleven about eleven thirty-one. The clerk of the meeting just turns to the person next and shakes hands. And that means it's over. And then everyone shakes hands and then it's done. And you will not be the same person if you go to one of these things and, and sit through it. It'll be good. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Mm, sir. Yeah, um, do you know when you're writing a book, do you know how it's gonna end when you're writing it before you write it? Do I know how a book is gonna end? Um, well, I like happy endings. I, I want, I, I I can't stand when people think that they're being, you know, dark by having things end all broken and wrecked and sad. So I know it's gonna be happy somehow. But how to get there? Um, in this case, I knew that um, there was this, that there was this whole crisis of, uh, uh, a health crisis that he had to deal with. So I kind of knew that was waiting in the wings. I'll tell you what happens is, is when you get about three quarters of the way through a book, um, and this has happened with every book, 15 of these little books, I get this desperate urge to finish. And it's just so powerful that I, 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 I push really hard to get finished. It's, just, it's a high actually to get done with the book it's eagerness to get finished. So in some ways I don't I I just so much want to finish that I don't know how it's gonna end. I just sort of rush through. We got time for one or two more. Sure. Uh, yeah, I read your book, The Everlasting Story of Nori when it first came out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you actually had
1: a young daughter like the narrator
0: of the book did, but if you did, she must be out of college by now. Mm-hmm. She wanna be a writer God you know so much. Questions about the uh, everlasting story of Nori. It's about a 9-year-old girl in a in a town in England. It's based on a year that I spent with my family in England in in Ely, which has a beautiful cathedral and my daughter was 9 and I would take her to school in the morning and she would go to school and learn how to use a medium nib pen or whatever it was that they taught in England. They were very good teachers there. And then I would pick her up from school and I'd say, would you like to be interviewed? (laughs) And so I basically interviewed her about every day of school. And then it was an enormous transcription. And then I fictionalized things and played with things a little bit. And it's always bothered me because I feel that I sort of appropriated her nine-year-old life. And I've talked to her about it. She's 26 now. Um, and she does want to be a writer, and I think I wrote about that stuff that she would be writing about now, and it's maybe a mistake. But she says, "No, I would never have remembered some of those things if you hadn't interviewed me then." So I guess it sort of it's it sort of worked out okay.
1: One last question, any any takers? I should ask a more sensible question the first time. I guess it's not outstanding member of the I guess the Aquarium Society, and I guess the lecturer at the Cambridge says, "What is it like at the?"
0: What is what like at the Cambridge Union Society? I've, I've been to Cambridge, but I've never lectured at the Cambridge Union Society, but I sure would love an invitation. I, mean, <laughs> I, I love the way they mow the lawns in, in Cambridge. That, that kind of crisscrossing thing and the beautiful, the, the, the kempedness of everything there. Um, but I've lately just, I don't know, I guess my right. Anglophilia has taken a hit the British Empire did terrible things. What can I say? But no, if, the, if I got a call from the Cambridge Union Society, I would happily lecture there about something. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much.